So I grew up in a pastor's family and um, pretty much always said that I came out of the womb and into the nursery. So part of that growing up, I always felt like my testimony was kind of weak. I didn't have that big moment of I was going through this and then God saved me and moved me out of that. That almost becomes a big part of my story. So on April of 2021, um, I was out playing disc golf. I love playing disc golf and I was out on a course on a Monday. On Wednesday, I remember waking up and I woke up and my hands were kind of numb and tingly, and my feet were numb and tingly, and my mouth kind of had a weird feeling. Um, but I tried to explain all of it away. And my dad said, why don't you just come home for the weekend? That evening I was watching TV at their house and I went to get up to go to bed and I really struggled to get off the couch. And I woke up that next morning and I could not stand up. By that Saturday night, I was being admitted to the hospital for Guillain-Barre syndrome. Guillain-Barre syndrome is basically where my body's own immune system started attacking my nervous system, which made it to where the signals no longer were passing from my brain to the rest of my body. I don't ever remember being scared, uh, but I do remember in the hospital at one point, my mom, I was talking to her and I said, um, did you guys ever feel like I was gonna die? And she didn't really respond with a yes or a no, but she rather, she just asked me, do you remember asking me what the mortality rate was? And I just started praying and I said, God, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what this is gonna look like. I don't know what the end result is, um, but I know you're in control. My physical weakness um, started to change and we started to notice his strength throughout this entire thing. Both of my brothers are pastors and my dad is also a pastor and I, got many messages just from people or cards from people in their churches. I felt more a part of a church and more a part of LifePoint than I had previously just because I knew people were praying for me, people were checking in on me. Here at LifePoint, we always say the phrase, imagine a church where no one walks alone. Um, and I can honestly say that really happened for me throughout this whole thing. One of the main things that I learned throughout this whole ordeal be still and know that He is God. I was able to finally find rest knowing that He was the one in control. Well, good morning, LifePoint Online. Happy Easter to you. Thanks so much for joining us uh, this morning as we celebrate uh, the resurrection. You have already uh, had the opportunity this morning to see Justin's story. And I think in Justin's journey, there are three things that really stick out for me. And the first one is that everybody's got a story. If you're listening to me this morning and you've lived enough life, um, you've got a story. And you know, you heard Justin say, you know, I kind of thought my kind of thought my story was weak, and then all of a sudden life starts to catch up, uh, not just with him, but with all of us, but certainly with him battling Guillain-Barre syndrome. And the second thing that he said that I thought stood out is that not just everybody has a story, but everybody needs a family. He said, you know, I found this place and space in my life where all of a sudden I was very afraid and I didn't have to walk alone. People came alongside with me. They shared not just resources, but they actually shared life and grief and mourning and strength with me in the process. So everybody has a story and everybody needs a family. And out of that, what you realize is that God's story can become your identity. And those three things to me really become the message of Easter um, in a lot of ways. What we've been studying in this Ascent series as we kind of close it out today is that God's story kind of moves along the mountains of the Bible. 
in some ways. And so we've looked at four different kind of mountaintop moments in Scripture. Um, and as we've looked at those, what we've recognized is that sometimes God moves the mountain and sometimes God moves the people on the mountain. Sometimes God changes people's circumstances and sometimes God changes people in the middle of those circumstances. And I think what's critical for us in understanding that, that big idea that we've talked about every week is this, uh, this reality that you, we find purpose in God's provision, that um, God establishes uh, his purpose in our lives and we see that firmly rooted in his provision um, for us. And so as we've looked at that and thought about those mountains, really today's mountain um, is the Mount of Olives. Uh, historically, it's the last place that Jesus uh, had his feet planted on this earth before he ascended uh, back to the Father in heaven. In Jerusalem today, if you visit that uh, place in space, there's a chapel there. It's called the Ascension Chapel. I'll show you um, a picture of it. And so as we think about the reality that Jesus uh, was resurrected, he walked out of that tomb, the question, the tension sometimes that comes up in our soul is, okay, well, what provision is the resurrection? How does the resurrection make a difference in my life? And if it really happened, um, if it could be true, um, what difference does that make? What difference does it make in your life um, or my life? Um, and if you believe in the resurrection, I hope obviously that today is an exciting day uh, for people of faith um, around the world. And I hope you're as excited as this video, uh, the little girl in this video I'm about to show you a couple of years ago, right after Easter Sunday, uh, a young gal was in LifePoint Kids and she went home and she recorded what I believe is one of the best Easter sermons um, I've ever heard. And her mom sent that on to me. So take a, take a minute here and just listen to a couple of seconds of her Easter message. Hi, boys and girls. What is your due today? Are you doing good? Good. Because I, Jesus is alive. Jesus, he was going somewhere dangerous. But he, but his friends, his wolf broke up. And that he went somewhere, his friends to come work for him. But he wasn't in. He wasn't right because God has healing power. And now he wants to be our friend forever. It's incredibly simple, right? Jesus is a wife. He wants to be your friend forever. I mean, it really is that, it really is that simple in some ways. At the same time, I think that you and I both know that there are a lot of people who are skeptical. And you say, man, I don't, I don't believe that at all. And I understand that uh, this morning. I guess what I would ask from you is for the next few minutes, would you just consider with me, what if? What if it is true? If it is true, then what difference does that make? We're going to start at the beginning uh, of the Easter narrative in Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter 16, the end of Mark's gospel. And we'll start reading in verse one. It says this, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus's body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were there, uh, they, were there they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance uh, to the tomb? Um, so here you've got the beginning of the resurrection, you've got Jesus's followers, they show up early on that morning to bring spices to um, anoint the body. Uh, of Jesus. And this is really how, in our minds, the Easter story 
kind of gets kicked off. It's important to understand culturally that the Hebrews, they did believe in a resurrection, but they thought the resurrection was a group thing. In other words, if an individual in their culture would have claimed a resurrection, they would have looked around and said, well, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't fit our grid. Because what they thought was God was going to resurrect all the good people at the same time. Messiah would be the leader in paradise and everything was supposed to be. Now, figuring out what good was, well, obviously would have been would have been a challenge, but they thought the resurrection was a, was a group thing. Um, think about it maybe from, from this perspective. Uh, maybe some of you watching this morning are Cleveland Browns fans, and you believe, firmly believe, that the Browns are going to win the Super Bowl this year because you believe that every year, uh, no matter what, what happens. It would be like me suggesting um, that, you know what, the Browns aren't going to win the Super Bowl, but Miles um, Garrett or Nick Chubb is going to win the Super Bowl, right? We would challenge that idea because... Winning the Super Bowl is a team thing. In their culture, if someone claimed a resurrection, an individual, they would have denied that. <clears throat> they would have said, no way could that be, because they believed that the resurrection was a team deal. Um, that brings us to the idea, the idea of expectations for those folks who showed up that morning. So Jesus's early followers that first day, that first morning uh, of Easter, they... Uh, they made claims about the resurrection, but they didn't have expectations for the resurrection. They had resurrection um, claims, and they certainly made them. They're outlined in Scripture, but, but they didn't have expectations. No one expected the resurrection. If they would have expected it, if the followers of Jesus would have expected a resurrection, they would have been standing by the tomb. It would have been kind of like um, in our culture, Ryan Seacrest and New Year's Rock and Eve, right? And when the, when the day shift would have happened for them, they would have been counting down 10, 9, 8, 7, and, and they would have been right there, right there waiting on it. But they were just like everybody else. They were just as surprised when Jesus walked out of that tomb. And their, um, their emotion, the way they responded, I think, in the Gospels, it's, very, it's plainly written, but it's very different than the way that we portray it um, at times. Look back in Mark 16. We'll pick it up in verse 9. It says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were, and this is a key word, because they were afraid. So go back to that initial thought that I gave you at the top. Everybody, everybody has a story. You know, for you and me, um, if you live long enough, you may not have Guillain-Barre syndrome, but you will run into something. You will run into addif addictive patterns and behaviors. You'll run into conflict with somebody that you love. You'll run into unanswerable questions in your career. You'll run into frustration in a marriage relationship, a parental relationship, <clears throat> um, you'll run into something. Everybody has a story. And when we run into that, when we have those kind of high altitude tension moments in our lives, when you run into something, the primary emotion for us is just like it was for them. It's fear. What's going to happen? And what's interesting is just how we portray what we believe the disciples thought on that first Easter morning our thoughts tend to run to, well, immediately they understood. Jesus is alive, that means I'm gonna live forever. Jesus is alive, that means um, all my problems are solved. All my existential questions about my life, fear, future death, all of that has been solved. And that's not the way they reacted at all. The critics 
of the resurrection, skeptics of the resurrection would say things like, look, the resurrection is a, it's just a legend. It's just, it's just a made up story. And the way they kind of think that through sometimes is, well, the followers of Jesus, when he died, you know, they loved him and they loved his teaching. And over time, they kind of repeated his teachings. And this legend developed about, you know, that he was actually resurrected from, from the dead. And um, because of that, um, people, you know, they were kind of pre-scientific and gullible. So they started to, they started to believe it and they started to retell the story. And that's really where the resurrection narrative, that's really where the resurrection narrative kind of came from. The only thing is that's not how it happened at all. It's, it's not that they were hopeful because of the resurrection on that first morning. As a matter of fact, they were fearful. Other gospels tell the story. They, um, Peter and John, they thought they saw a ghost right at one point. I mean, they fell down on their faces in fear. The resurrection in the early, with the early followers of Jesus, it did not produce a decrease in fear, actually just the opposite. It produced an increase in fear. It didn't produce a decrease in danger in their lives, just the opposite. It was an increase in fear. On the first Easter morning, the disciples didn't walk around looking at each other, you know, going, he is risen. He is risen indeed, right? That's not what they were like, he is risen. Oh no, we're gonna die, right? We're gonna have to face these same Jewish leaders. We're gonna have to face these same Roman crosses as, as he faced. Their reaction, their primary emotion was not, this is great. Their primary emotion, much like us, because everybody has a story, their primary emotion was fear. Now, the good news about that and the great news about God is that he uses everything in our lives. He uses the tension in the high altitude, the difficult moments of our lives, the difficult relationships, the different, difficult stops along the way in our lives, moments when we run in to a syndrome or a disease or to tests or a diagnosis. He uses all, he doesn't waste anything. And so what God does is he uses their fear to create something special. John describes it at the end of his gospel um, in John chapter 20, verse 19. John says it this way, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked. This is, this is post-crucifixion, uh, disciples. Um, he says the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear. There's that word again of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. God uses fear to create a sense of family. Here the disciples are. They're locked in this room together. And there's this sense post-resurrection that now because, of, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, now it's worse. Now they're more afraid, not, not less afraid. Now there's more danger, not less danger. And here's the thing, what we learned from Justin's story is that everybody needs, everybody needs a family. Everybody needs to know that they're not walking by themselves, that, that, they're, not walking, that they're not walking alone. And so God creates this sense, family, among the disciples after the resurrection, standing behind a locked door. And I think one of the questions that you and I have to answer about the Easter narrative, if you're a skeptic, you don't believe, how do the disciples who are staying behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, for fear of the Romans, how do they go from being those people to being people who are willing to die, people who are willing to be tortured for the sake of the cross. What's the difference that gets them from here to here? In other words, I'll ask it, would you die? Would you be willing to be tortured 
for some kind of made up, some kind of made up hoax. I think that a lot of times what is said is, well, you know, I mean, the Easter story is a great story and all, but it's really just like comfort food for people. It's like, it's like wish fulfillment. Like, well, yeah, you want it to be true because you're afraid of death. People are afraid of death. And so, and so we made up this resurrection story, um, kind of this made up tool to help, you, to help you deal with fear. Are you willing to die for some made up comfort food story? What's interesting is that history, historical documentation actually supports the resurrection. I'll, I'll maybe say it to you in an anti, from an anti perspective, right? Um, do you believe that Socrates lived? Or Socrates, if you watch Bill and Ted's excellent uh, adventure uh, back in the 90s? You, no one questions that, right? I mean, we know what Socrates said because Plato came along and he wrote down Socrates' teachings and that developed into the Socratic method. And um, there are manuscripts out there that we have from history. And, you know, I think Plato was about 400 years. He wrote about the, the newest manuscripts that we have of Plato are about 400 years from when he actually wrote. There's that kind of gap there. There's only seven of them, by the way. Seven manuscripts that we have of Plato's writings that are... But you, you've never heard a professor, I would guess, question whether or not Plato wrote Plato or that Socrates, through whom we know about Plato's writings, you've never heard him question whether or not Plato was a real person or Socrates was a real person or Socrates really said what he said. Never would, never would there be a question about that. And yet, with only seven copies, seven manuscript copies, we have over 25,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament. 25,000 manuscript copies. Some of those copies date all the way back to within 20 to 30 years of the resurrection. Some of those fragments start, start there. So I want you to think about the comparison between those two things, we just assume this is true. And over here, the weight of evidence is, is incredible. It's amazing. I want you, so think about it from this perspective. Um, if, if there were writings 20 years from the resurrection of Jesus, think about your life. Think about, think about what was going on 20 years ago. Uh, 2000, 2003. What was the most popular movie of 2003? It's Finding Nemo, right? Um, what was the most popular social media platform in 2003? Now, it was pre-Facebook, so get that, right? It was MySpace, right? Your friend Tom. Some of you are still on MySpace, I think. Um, think about what was the most, um, what was the most popular um, TV show back in 2003? It was American Idol, season two, right? I guess my point is, if you were alive 20 years ago, you can remember what happened 20 years ago. And so thinking about the fact that we have documentation of the resurrection going up to within 20 um, years from the actual event, I would say it to you this way, that the resurrection of Jesus is by a landslide, the most well-documented event in ancient world history. And it's not even, it's not even close. 
So, it, well, it's not even just the evidence that is there, it's the evidence that's not there. The anti-evidence that should be there if the resurrection is not true. Here's how Paul said it to the, uh, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15 and verse 6. He brings up this idea. He said, then he, he Jesus, uh, post-resurrection, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul says to his original audience, and 1 Corinthians was written somewhere 20 to 40 years post-resurrection, so we're right, in, we're right in that same window. He says, hey, by the way, after Jesus uh, was, was resurrected, after he was raised, about 500 people saw him, and they're all still alive, so go, go talk to him. Listen, if, if you're purporting a made-up hoax, the last thing that you're going to want to do is bring up the fact that people can go talk to the people who may or may not have saw him, and you don't want people go digging up information if you're purporting a hoax. Another way to think about it. Let's say the followers of Jesus, they go out, they start teaching that Jesus uh, was raised from the dead. Immediately, if you're the Roman Empire and you want to squash this, if you're the Hebrew leaders and you want to squash this, what are you going to do? You're going to roll that stone away from the tomb and you're going to invite anybody and everybody to come and walk in there. Look, at there he is. There's his body. But the Romans could not produce a body that they did not have. And they had no answer for the people who were telling the greatness of the gospel story that Jesus was miraculously resurrected. They had, they had no answer, no answer for that. Um, no answer for the people who were going out um, and who were preaching um, the gospel. There was, there was just nothing, there was nothing there um, for them to say. So you've got the early followers um, of Jesus out there teaching. You've got a lack of evidence. You could go verify that uh, among these other, these other 500 or so uh, folks who were there. And it, it's, not just, it's not just that. But sometimes critics will say things like, well, you know, there are contradictions. These contradictions in the story of Easter. Sometimes they'll bring up this contradiction. The first verse that we read, Mark chapter 16, verse 1, says the women were coming to the tomb early that morning to bring spices. But whenever Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took Jesus off the cross, it says that they put spices on the body that day right at the end of Passover on Friday, right? So some people will say, oh, there's a contradiction because Joseph and Nicodemus put spices on the body, but then a couple of days later, it says the women were coming to put spices on the body. That's a contradiction. That's not a contradiction <laughs> at all. I think I can tell you how this went down. I've been married 27, happily married, 27 years. I think I know what happened. I think a couple of days after they had put Jesus in the grave, the women got together and they were thinking, you know what, the men were supposed to put the spices on the body. They probably didn't do it right. So they were like, we better go check out what they did and we'll clean up, right? And probably rightly so. Um, all, of their, all of their messes. These, these ideas that there are all these contradictions um, in the narrative, there is a lack of evidence that would have been simple and easy to squash the idea of the resurrection. But the reality is they couldn't do it. They, they could not prove it. The, in the 1800s, there was a, a philosopher, his name was Friedrich Nietzsche in Germany. And Nietzsche was one of the first modern philosophers to put forth the idea that we as a society, 
worldwide had no greater need, no greater need for God. As a matter of fact, the way he said it was that God is dead. He purported that idea, and that idea started to catch um, momentum. That we were powerful enough, smart enough, strong enough, that we no longer had the need for the myth of God in, in Nietzsche's mind. Now, not to mention the reality that the Germans, shortly after he wrote that, picked up on that philosophy and they used Nietzsche's philosophy to justify the gas chambers of the Holocaust. But Nietzsche, here's what he said one time. He said this, in some remote corner of this sprawling universe, twinkling among the countless solar systems, there was once a star on which some clever animals invented knowledge. And it was the most arrogant, the most mendacious minute of world history, but it was only a minute. And after nature caught its breath, that little star froze and the clever animals had to die. And it was time to, for although they boasted of how much they had come to know, in the end they realized they had gotten it all wrong. They died and in dying cursed truth. Such was the species of the doubting animal that had invented knowledge. And can I tell you, since the 1800s, this, that's the scientific narrative, and it just hasn't changed all that much. That all you and I are, are some clever little animals that developed on a rock somewhere out in a solar system. And all we're doing right now, we're thinking how smart we are. Someday this rock's going to freeze, the sun's going to burn out, and such will be the story of the clever little animals, you and me, that invented knowledge. But what I'm arguing today is that you and I find our purpose in the resurrection. But if the resurrection occurred, nothing else matters. And if the resurrection didn't occur, nothing else matters. If the resurrection occurred, it's the greatest moment in all of history. Think about it this way. What if Nietzsche was wrong? What if Nietzsche is dead and Jesus is alive? What if, what if what you and I have been taught, what you and I have done, what if we gather our ideas around the realities of the evidence, the realities of what we see and know and feel and sense in our hearts? What if Jesus wasn't a victim, but he was a victor? What if love won on that cross? It's a tension. It's a faith tension. Paul talks about it at the end of his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he describes the tension this way in verse 17. He says, if Christ is not raised, in other words, there's no resurrection. If Christ is not raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, Paul says, listen, if there's no resurrection, you have no answer for the mistakes you've made, the things you've done wrong, the ways you've hurt people, for your guilt, shame, and regret for the things that when you lay down at night, the things that creep up in your mind, the things that you wish you could go back and undo, there's no answer for those things if there's no resurrection. Um, in the next verse, he says, if Christ is not raised, then you won't see your loved ones again. The greatest mourning, the greatest grief um, in your heart, my heart, with the people that we lose, that we love, if there's no resurrection, we have no hope of seeing them again in the future. Down in verse 58, same chapter, he says, if Christ is not raised, then your work um, is in vain. In other words, the things that you and I do day to day, a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, 
10,000 years from now, no one's ever going to remember your name and nothing that you do will matter if there is no resurrection. But the thing that turns, the thing that turned, the thing that changed the Apostle Paul from being someone who was willing uh, to murder, to persecute Christians, to be a person who was persecuted, to become someone who's willing to be murdered for the sake of Christianity, the thing that turned for him is what he did, what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. He says, but now Christ is raised from the dead. So the good news for you and me is that you are not some clever little animal just sitting, waiting on a rock, right, to freeze. That the resurrection gives you meaning and value and purpose. God is not dead. He is alive. He walked out of that tomb on the third day. And in doing so, this empty tomb gives us full faith in what he has done for us. And it secures for us a powerful, powerful promise. Here's how Paul describes it in the next couple of verses in, um, in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam, uh, Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Everybody has a story. Everybody needs a family. And if the resurrection is true, God's story can become your identity. The fact that God has provided for you in the purpose or in the provision of the cross through Christ and through the resurrection that happens on the third day, that provision can give your life meaning and value and purpose. The resurrection changes everything for us. So as Paul, as you think through his writings, then in, in the New Testament, he says things along the way. Right in the in the chapters, he says things like there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life. Right. Has crushed the law of sin and death. So we think about that from a from a resurrection perspective. And you think about this reality. What died in that tomb that day was death's grip. It wasn't Jesus. What died in that tomb that day was death's grip on you. Jesus goes into the tomb that day and you and I are still slaves to sin. Jesus walks out of the tomb that day and you and I are eternally free. That, that is what helps us deal with our fear. See the accumulation of what happens there in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus is resurrected, if, if their reality is that Jesus walked out of that tomb, so what? Here's what Paul would say. So your work matters. So the people that you, that you love, you, you are going to see them again. And your faith, your faith is not in vain. So that's why Paul says, you work through that chapter, incredible chapter, Romans chapter 8. You get down there to the middle of the chapter. Paul says, listen, we have not received a spirit of slavery. Again, to what? to fear, dealing with that primary emotion that we often when we come into these tensions. And he says, we have not received a spirit of again, a slavery of, again to fear. But what, but what have, we, have we received? Because of the resurrection, we have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters of God, that we are adopted by him, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, that we have relationship with the king of the universe. That's why we sing songs. 
That's why he's saying, now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. That's why we sing songs. Oh, how I long to breathe the air of heaven. Because we have a hope out in front of us about the future. So when Paul gets down to the end of that chapter, he's saying, because of the resurrection, it brings up some conclusions. What are those conclusions? He says, for what shall separate us from the love of God? And he starts to think through what are some of those things. And he comes to the conclusion, no, nothing. For we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. So what? He says, I am convinced. I'm not guessing. I'm not just, it's not wish fulfillment. He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And just in case I left anything else out, Paul says, nor any other created thing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If Jesus walked out of that tomb that first Easter morning, everything matters. And if Jesus didn't walk out of that tomb that first Easter morning, really nothing matters. But here's what I believe. I believe that you and I know it's true. I believe history tells us it's true. I believe our hearts tell us that it's true. I believe stories like Justin's prove it to be true in a modern context. That just the same place we started today, Jesus is alive and he wants to be your friend forever. This morning, you can receive Christ and step into personal relationship with him by turning away from your own reliance on your good deeds, asking him to forgive you of your sins and placing your faith in him for your future. If you would like to do that, I would love to help you do that right now. Wherever you're sitting and listening, you can pray along with me. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, we are so grateful that you went to the cross. And Jesus, we're grateful this morning for the things that we celebrate on Good Friday. But Jesus, we are also grateful for the things we celebrate on Easter Sunday. That you not only died, but that you were miraculously resurrected. And so this morning, Jesus, I'm asking that you would forgive me of my sins that you would make my heart new. And Jesus, I'm saying today that I want to follow you. I want you to be the leader. I'll be the follower. Thank you for this incredible salvation gift. In Jesus' name, amen.